Welcome to the weekly message from Rama Family Church. It is our hope that as you listen to this message, you will come to know Jesus better and be established in your faith and equipped for the work of the ministry. You can view the sermon notes and listen online at rhema.org.au forward slash media. Well, good evening. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Christian Worldview. Good to have you all here. For those of you who are just new to this or just joining us, we've been going over some of the bigger questions in life, um, some of the bigger topics. And sometimes with the worldview discussions, what happens is the topics we talk about are very abstract, right? They seem quite big but distant and not all that relatable to our lives. The topic at hand this evening is not one of those. This topic this evening is one that confronts each and every single one of us right from our first breath every morning. Um, It comes right to us, and it's something that we have to face and deal with every single day. It's virtually unavoidable for all humans. This is the topic of ethics. And seeing as we're talking about worldviews, tonight's approach will be uh, looking at ethics from a Christian perspective. So with that, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you in humility, Lord, and we understand that we cannot do this without you, that we cannot know your truths, Lord, and represent you, Jesus, without knowing who you are and what you want us to do, Lord. So we just thank you, God, for your word, Lord, that it is truth for the innermost parts of who we are, And Lord, I just pray and thank you tonight for um, clarity of speech, Lord, and that you'll speak tonight and to people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, since the beginning of all humanity, uh, people have been asking the question, um, how should I live my life? What should I do with the years I have on earth? What is right and what is wrong? Ethics is basically asking the question, How should I, or how should we, live our lives? It's about the moral values and behavior. Tonight I want to give just a very brief introduction, like a 101 to Christian ethics. It's such a broad topic and we do not have time to cover everything that it touches. We're going to look at what is Christian ethics, as opposed to, say, non-Christian ethics. Who or where do we get our ethics from? How can we know what is right and wrong? And what are some of the underlying principles when we talk about ethics? As Christians, we need to remember that we give account and we bring our questions to God. God, who is our authority on ethics. So this evening, we'll be looking into Christian ethics. But before we go into that, we want to briefly look into ethics itself. What are ethics broadly or generally speaking. What is ethics? Ethics or moral philosophy is the branch of philosophy that deals with determining the proper course of action for humanity, involving systematizing, defending, and recommending concepts of right and wrong behavior. Ethics investigates the questions, what is the best way for people to live? How should we live our life? And what actions are right and wrong in particular circumstances? In practice, ethics tries to resolve questions of human morality by defining concepts such as good and evil, right and wrong, vice and virtue, and crime and justice. 
And more often than not, it's fairly easy to come up with a good moral answer to any kind of question. Um, things like, don't kill other people, don't steal, um, you know, don't hurt, do help, general principles that we all know. But how many of us know that life's not always straightforward like that? And sometimes what we normally see as an easy answer um, can be at times quite difficult to come to an, a, a, an adequate ethical answer. What is the good life? For many, this seems like having lots of money or having lots of freedoms and things like that. Um, for others, it's living the most selfless life possible and giving all or most of what they have to those who need it um, more than they do. But there is no complete consensus or agreement on this. So who gets to decide what the good life really is? Is there such thing as moral truth? If so, how do we discern moral truth? How do we know if something is morally true or a moral fact? Are morals something that we simply invent or are they something that we discover? Is it all just a matter of emotional opinion or what culture passes on to us over time? You can see that ethics really is quite broad when you start to break it down and you start to look into it. It affects many different areas of life. The philosophy of ethics seeks to confront the need to find a connection between ethical theory and then ethical practice, how they meet, especially since some ethical situations um, seem morally unclear at times. There are many examples of moral ethical quandaries that we face, um, some more than others, and some highly more extreme than others. Remember the not too long ago case with the Christian cake maker or cake baker who was confronted with that um, situation, right? She rejected to make a cake for somebody who was married to the same sex because she felt that it conflicted with her deepest inner um, Christian values. Um, and so because of that, she was persecuted, um, she was bullied, to say the least, and, and she was sued. Um, pretty crazy stuff. Immediately, something like this raises the question, what is right? What is right? Is it what brings the most benefit to me? Is it what brings the most benefit to others? Is it what brings the most benefit to others, the most of others now? Or is it what brings the most benefit to most people in the long run or in the final end? What is it that makes something good or right? What does it mean to act morally? And what are the motives for doing so? So far, should we, let me say that again, how far should we or will we go to act morally and do what is right, even if the results are unpleasant? How many of you guys think that Robin Hood was a good guy? Raise your hand. Okay, there's a few of us. How many think he was bad? He's a bad. How many of you just don't care? There's at least one of us. All right. <clears throat> we all know that whole ethical situation, right? Steal from the rich and give to the poor. It wasn't also just stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. Remember, it was stealing from the evil rich and giving to the innocent poor. All of a sudden, it's a whole different you know, game of cards. That's right. It's, it's, these rich people were evil, right? 
and they were taking from these poor people who were good and innocent, right? So to some people, that's, that's a hero. Somebody who steals, which isn't a good thing to do. Stealing is wrong. But he did it for a better purpose. He stole from the evil rich and gave to the innocent poor. To some people, that's permissible. To some people, it's still not permissible. It's still stealing. And so what do you do? Who is Robin Hood? That is a real question. <clears throat> I'm not even sure he was a real historical figure. <laughs> but anyway, let's all pretend he was. Or maybe something a little bit more serious. What would you do if you were in Nazi Germany in the mid-1900s? And what would you do if some Jews came knocking on your door uh, looking for shelter? And um, immediately following that, a, a Nazi or a soldier knocks on your door and demands that you tell them, do you have any Jews? Are you sheltering any Jews? Do you lie in order to prevent them being murdered? Or do you hold on to a moral principle that says lying's always wrong, and so you, you just say, yeah, I'm not going to lie, they're down there, go get them, you know? What do you, I mean, this is a difficult question for some people. For others, it's a simple question. I mean, it's a simple answer. You just lie and, you know... It prevents murder, which is a far worse evil, right? It's interesting. It's not so straightforward for, for, uh, for some, and we'll get into a few more analogies soon um, that will bring this out. What about this? Let's say you're one of four people in a lifeboat, right? And there's only enough food for three of you. So one of you necessarily has to starve or die. So who... Who chooses who's the one to die? <laughs> I mean, um, this is, these are quite like, com you know, comedic. But the point is, do you sacrifice your life to save the other three? Or is that even just? I mean, taking your own life to, to save others, is, is that a just thing to do? Um, could be. Do you kill someone else? Because, you know, it'd be good for you to live, right? Of course, that's the wrong answer. There's a TV show that I watched uh, quite some time ago. It was with a father and a son. And the father was actually a high court judge. And uh, the story goes that the son is driving home one day and he accidentally hits another guy on a motorbike um, and un just very tragically uh, ends up killing the, the young teenager who was on the bike. And so the son, in complete distraught and panic, realized that um, he couldn't handle what was going on, and he freaked out and made a really poor decision, and he fled the scene. He left. Um, he had a moment where he tried to report it, but then he bailed on that and just thought, I'm going to leave. And he left this dying kid to just bleed on the side of the road. Um, he goes home, he tells his father, and he tells him what he's done, and his father, being a judge, immediately just thought, oh, no, you've, you know, you've killed this person, the justice system is not going to let you off. We have to do the right thing. And so the father brings the son in the car and takes him towards the police station to hand him over. Uh, and just as the father walks in through the door, he sees a man and a woman completely um, emotionally wrecked. They are just bawling and very, very sad. And he recognizes the identity of the man. Um, he's seen this man and his family in court before and realizes that this man has actually been involved in gang crime, murder, 
violence, the most heinous of all crimes, uh, and because he was very wealthy, had gotten away with a lot of that. Um, so the judge immediately recognized who it was. He put two and two together, and then he realized, oh no, his son has just accidentally killed the son of the biggest gang lord in all of the region. And so upon realizing that, the father then goes, if I hand my son in, he's almost certainly going to go to prison and this prison was almost completely run by this, this gang lord. Um, and so he knew that he would be sending his son to certain death. So what do you do? What did he do? He decided to leave. So he grabbed his son, he went back in the car and he left and he didn't report his son. What do you think the right decision should have been? Did you think he made the right decision? After all, as a father, your primary concern is for the safety and protection of your children. Is that one of your primary concerns? Is that something that you must do regardless? Look after your child no matter what? He didn't have a wife, and he had only this just one son, just to make the situation a little bit worse. He was all he had in life. Um, or did he violate a greater duty that he had being a high court judge to not uphold the law and not, not hand his son over? Very interesting. What would you do in that situation? You can see that it's not always easy, especially when things confront you in a personal, uh, very close sense. Um, sometimes what you think is an easy answer can be quite difficult uh, when it's you that has to face that. Now, I want to do something just a little bit differently tonight. So, um, you'll notice that for the most part, we're all sectioned into groups of three or two. So, what I want us to do is we're going to play a clip shortly, and I want us to think through the questions that this clip brings, uh, and I want us to give our answer to the group that you're sitting with. Um, it should just be, yeah, two or three. If it's four, it doesn't matter too much. And you will have a piece of paper with you uh, that looks like this without the water stains because I dropped some water on it earlier. And it basically is a morality test. It's going to give you a, a multiple choice, answer A or answer B to each of these questions. If you have a pen with you, um, you can use that. Otherwise, if you don't, you can just use your phone or something to record your answers. Um, but I want us to give our answers and talk about it and discuss it with our group uh, and to see what decision we made and why we made that decision. Um, if you're just a person sitting by yourself, feel free to shoot over and talk to someone who's nearby. Um, also, it's worth saying that these uh, ethical dilemmas that are presented in this video are deliberately extreme. So some of them are a little bit uh, PG rated, um, a little bit intense. And so I apologize if that's a little bit too much for you. Um, all right, so could we play that first video? Should you or shouldn't you? <laughs> the hardest morality test ever. Some choices are pretty easy. Coffee or tea, fries or onion rings, <laughs> boxers or briefs. Others, however, are so hard that they seem almost impossible to make. We're specifically talking about moral dilemmas here when both options just seem so unfair or undesirable, but something's got to be done. So get ready and calibrate your moral compass, 
because we've prepared the hardest test ever. It's full of moral dilemmas, and the way you solve them can speak volumes about your personality. After each question, you'll have 10 seconds to mull the situation over and come to a decision. Write down the letter of the answer you choose, A or B, to find out your results at the end of the video. And remember, this is just a quiz and not some session with a professional psychologist or anything. Hey, it's just me. So don't take it too seriously, okay? Number 1. A Runaway Train Imagine that you're the conductor of a train that you've suddenly lost control of and is about to crash into a group of five innocent bystanders totally unaware of their impending doom. They'll definitely be killed by the impact unless you throw a switch that can divert the train to another track. But in this case, it would run over an unsuspecting man who's sleeping on the rails. Would you be able to throw the switch? A. Yes, easily. B. Mm, no way. I couldn't possibly do that with a clean conscience. Starting off strong, I see. Dang, what a tough choice. Perhaps those five people will notice the train and get out of harm's way. Should you risk it? You've got 10 seconds to decide. Now, the video does say you've got 10 seconds. We're going to give you a minute. I think that's probably a bit more fair. Um, we're going to have some discussion on that, so what do you do? <clears throat> do you throw the switch? Yes or no? Remember to talk about why. Why did you decide to throw the switch, or why did you not? We've got 20 seconds left on that one. All right, that's it. That's it for a minute. Next question. Make sure you record your answers. We're going to bring them up at the end. Number 2. A trolley out of control. A streetcar is out of control and speeding towards a group of seven people. Okay, sounds familiar. Being on an overhead footbridge, you're not in danger. You see a big bulky guy standing next to you, and you realize that if you push the man onto the track below the footbridge, it'll stop the trolley. However, the man will surely die. On the other hand, you'll save seven innocent people. Would you sacrifice one life for seven? A. I'd do it without hesitation. B. I just couldn't take a life, even if it meant saving seven other people. Well, they're not called moral dilemmas for nothing. What's the right thing to do here? If 10 seconds isn't enough to solve this problem, you can always pause the video. Alrighty, another minute. Could you do it? You notice this one's a bit different to the last one. 
it's not just the not doing of something, it's the actual doing of something. You're the one who's pushing the person off. The switch is kind of distant and you're not really doing something, it feels like. This one's quite hands-on. It's, it's the killing of someone. But you save seven people. Tough. <laughs> you picked a great night to come. <laughs> Ten more seconds. It's harder when you know the person. That would be much harder. Not speaking from experience, of course. Number three, a judge's dilemma. You are the judge at a trial of a bank robber who is, in fact, innocent, and you know it for sure. But at the moment, the enemies of the accused have kidnapped your six-year-old daughter and are demanding that you convict the robber in return for her freedom. You have no idea where they're keeping her, and the police can't figure it out as well. You're a nervous wreck and can't help but think that the kidnappers will or already are abusing your child. Would you convict the innocent man to save your daughter? A. I would never convict an innocent person. I'd try to find another way to save my child. B. In a heartbeat. It's twice as difficult when a child, especially your own, is involved. Which alternative is your heart telling you to pick? these ones you have to answer you you can't just bail tough hey five more seconds then we go to the next question number four your best friend's wedding You've been invited to your best friend's big day. Two hours before the ceremony is supposed to start, you notice your friend's future spouse sneaking out of some storage room with another guest. They both look thoroughly disheveled, and you realize that they're having an affair. And here comes the dilemma. If you tell your friend what you found out, their perfect day will be completely ruined. At the same time, How can you allow your friend to marry somebody who's unfaithful? What would you do in such a situation? A. I'd tell my friend about the affair. Everybody deserves to know the truth. B. I wouldn't say anything. After all, my job is to support my friend's new beginnings. Plus, I could be mistaken. It's not a life-or-death choice. (laughs) We need a break from those. But it's still a tough one. 
to make a friend unhappy but aware, or keep them blissfully ignorant. I did C as well. That's, that's what I chose. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, that'll work. Throw the girl in front of the trolley. I don't know about that. <laughs> 15 seconds till the next one. It's important that we don't just find the answer, but that we know why we chose the answer. That's going to deal with our moral principles coming up. Number five, reporting Robin Hood. You've witnessed a crime. A man robbed a bank and got away with it. However, he doesn't keep the money for himself. He instead donates it to an orphanage that's on the verge of bankruptcy. After his donation, the orphanage's management can buy clothes, books, medicine, and food for the kids. Well, you know who committed the crime. But you also know that if you go to the police, the money will most likely be returned to the bank and the orphans won't get what they desperately need. So, what do you do? A. A crime is a crime after all. I'd turn the robber into the police. B. This money was used for a noble purpose. I'd keep my silence. Which side will your moral compass take? No one said this would be easy. Crime is crime after all. I'd turn the robber into the police. Or this money was used for a noble purpose. I'd keep my silence. What do you do? So these, these will be easy for some people and these will be very close to impossible for others. What do you do? What do you do? 20 seconds. Depends which bank it was, right? Everyone's got that one bank that they don't like. They're like, I'd allow it to happen to that bank. Commonwealth. No. Joking, guys. Just in case a Commonwealth representative is listening. My bank account gets shut down. Number six. A car crash and a killed pedestrian. You're on your way home from work one evening when you get into an accident with another car. Even worse, you've also hit and killed a pedestrian. However, as you're about to get out of your car, the driver of the other vehicle, a shocked woman in tears, runs toward you. Having heard her hysterical account of the event, you realize that the woman is absolutely convinced that it was she who killed the pedestrian even though you know that you were responsible. Hey, there's nobody around, only the two of you. 
you understand that the person found guilty will, of course, be sent to prison. Knowing that, are you ready to own up to it? A. I would confess that it was my fault. How could I live knowing that an innocent person was convicted for something I did? B. I'd let the woman take the fall. I don't want to go to prison and spend years away from my family. Plus, maybe it really was her fault. Well, are you ready to face the music, or are you going to dodge this bullet? Choices, choices. What do you do? What did you guys pick? They started difficult, didn't they? Pushing the dude. Yeah. yeah. These dilemmas bring out the grey. Brings out the grey. It gets it gets a whole lot worse, I can imagine, when it's people that you know, not just people out there, but like close family. All right, next question. We have one more question for you, and it's the toughest one of all. But before we throw it your way, let's check the results of this impossible test. More A's. If you chose more A's than B's, it means that you're a person who has a strict moral code, and you try to stick to your principles no matter what. You tend to thoroughly analyze a situation and choose the option that would be beneficial for more people, even if it wouldn't be for you personally. More B's If you chose more B's, you usually make decisions under the influence of your emotions. You're not very able to act according to commonly accepted moral rules if the situation feels too personal to you. Bonus! Who would you save? Alright, listen up. Imagine you're standing on the bank of a rushing mountain river during a flood. The rapids are pulling your significant other, your family member, and a briefcase with $5 million in it underwater. Who or what will you save? (laughs) You have only one rescue attempt and 10 seconds to decide what is most important for you. (laughs) I see you guys taking the money. Yeah, you. I see you. (laughs) All right. I did not say that. That did not come from me. Someone said, is that the mother-in-law? <clears throat> I can't say that. Especially me right now. Um, <clears throat> the money, significant other, family. Five million. A lot of things you could do with five million. Thinking of all the mansions. Boats. Mm. Oh, maybe it is. 
Yeah, maybe you threw it in the in the creek. Three seconds. Was that interesting? So I won't get you all to talk out loud or to you know explain um, what your views were, but hands up out of the seven, hands up if you got five or more of the A's. Yeah, so the majority. Hands up if you got five or more of the B's. Almost nobody. Interesting. Hands up if you got at least one B. Ooh, almost everybody. Well, pretty much everybody. There you go. So which was the hardest, do you think? Number two? Number two? A trolley out of control? Pushing one person to save seven? Tough. So tough. Yeah, even thinking through that myself, I was thinking, I, I don't know if I could do it. Like, I'm, I'm physically pushing, I'm killing this person. To, and I'm thinking, oh man, you know? Part of you thinks that like, there's some kind of fate or something, just let it all be. Take a step back, no responsibility. But, interesting. I'm sure for some of us, these were easy answers. And for some of us, yeah, they were not so easy. Some of us found them to be uh, almost close to impossible. Again, these scenarios are extremely unlikely and they're, you know, exaggerated to make a point. Um, but the point is still there. They are deliberately constructed to get us thinking about ethical principles. And so that's what I want to talk about very shortly is ethical principles. What underlies our applied ethics? Why do we do what we do? Often it's because we have um, a principle that we either are aware of or maybe unaware of uh, that guides our applied ethics and what we do. And it doesn't take much thinking to realize that we face a lot of these issues today. Uh, some are much more closely than others, but even around the world, when we think of right now what's going on in Afghanistan, you know, there are many of us who will be here that think there are better things that we should have done, that have strong opinions on what we should have done or what we should be doing right now about what's going on over there. Uh, and then some other people will have completely opposite opinions on that. Um, this is all due to different moral principles that people run off. Um, even COVID, you know, from lockdowns to vaccinations, this one is probably the biggest worldwide uh, conundrum that we're facing right now, you know? Some of us, again, very strong opinions on um, lockdowns, vaccinations. Others can't seem to buy it. And um, what guides that, again, are moral principles. So what are some of these underlying principles Typically, there are three main areas in ethics, so really briefly. First of all, we have what's called meta-ethics. Meta-ethics is what, or are what deals with the theoretical meaning of any ethical principle or any ethical proposition or moral proposition, what their truth values are, if they are truth values at all, and how they are grounded in reality. Are they grounded in something physical? Uh, are rights and wrongs grounded in something metaphysical or not made up of stuff, um, something abstract? Or are they grounded in a person, some, someone like God? So this is meta-ethics, and it's quite broad, and it en encompasses a whole lot more than that. It looks to ground the good in reality, to give us a foundation for the application of moral principles. 
the question, should I eat this piece of cake right now, is not necessarily a meta-ethical question. Um, that would be an applied ethical question. How do we go about doing right and wrong? However, what about the objective and subjective senses of morality? Is something right and wrong purely because someone or some group says so? Or are moral facts about the world actually discoverable, not just invented? Do moral values and duties show us that there must be an objective grounding? If we know one thing to be wrong, does that then not say that there has to be a grounding for right and wrong? Or if we know one thing to be right, does that too then not show us that something has to be a grounding for that right and wrong? Something grounded just beyond our mere opinions or ideas. Do they point to God? I want to play just a brief video that will help us to navigate through this meta-ethical um, question. This is the moral argument. Can you be good without God? Let's find out. Absolutely astounding. There you have it. Undeniable proof that you can be good without believing in God. But wait. The question isn't, can you be good without believing in God? The question is, can you be good without God? See, here's the problem. If there is no God, what basis remains for objective good or bad, right or wrong? If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. And here's why. Without some objective reference point, we have no way of saying that something is really up or down. God's nature provides an objective reference point for moral values. It's the standard against which all actions and decisions are measured. But if there's no God, there's no objective reference point. All we're left with is one person's viewpoint, which is no more valid than anyone else's viewpoint. This kind of morality is subjective, not objective. It's like a preference for strawberry ice cream. The preference is in the subject, not the object. So it doesn't apply to other people. In the same way, subjective morality applies only to the subject. It's not valid or binding for anyone else. So, in a world without God, there can be no evil and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. God has expressed his moral nature to us as commands. These provide the basis for moral duties. For example, God's essential attribute of love is expressed in his command to love your neighbor as yourself. This command provides a foundation upon which we can affirm the objective goodness of generosity, self-sacrifice, and equality. And we can condemn as objectively evil greed, abuse, and discrimination. This raises a problem. Is something good just because God wills it, or does God will something because it is good? The answer is neither one. Rather, God wills something because He is good. God is the standard of moral values, just as a live musical performance is the standard for a high-fidelity recording. Without your love. The more a recording sounds like the original, the better it is. Likewise, the more closely a moral action conforms to God's nature, the better it is. 
But if atheism is true, there is no ultimate standard. So there can be no moral obligations or duties. Who or what lays such duties upon us? No one. Remember, for the atheist, humans are just accidents of nature, highly evolved animals. But animals have no moral obligations to one another. When a cat kills a mouse, it hasn't done anything morally wrong. The cat's just being a cat. If God doesn't exist, we should view human behavior in the same way. No action should be considered morally right or wrong. But the problem is, good and bad, right and wrong, do exist. Just as our sense experience convinces us that the physical world is objectively real, our moral experience convinces us that moral values are objectively real. Every time you say, Hey, that's not fair, that's wrong, that's an injustice, you affirm your belief in the existence of objective morals. We're well aware that child abuse, racial discrimination and terrorism are wrong for everybody, always. Is this just a personal preference or opinion? No. The man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says 2 plus 2 equals 5. What all this amounts to, then, is a moral argument for the existence of God. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. But objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. Atheism fails to provide a foundation for the moral reality every one of us experiences every day. In fact, the existence of objective morality points us directly to the existence of God. Pretty cool. Reasonable faith. Check him out. That's the moral argument. Um, super interesting. Highly disputed and controversial. Um, but I like that one. I think it's quite good and I think it makes a lot of sense of what's uh, in reality, what we experience. So we've looked at meta-ethics briefly and we've just introduced uh, a argument for God from um, the objective grounding of right and wrong. And so the second section or part of ethics that we're going to look at is what's called normative ethics. So you have meta-ethics and then you have normative ethics. So normative ethics are basically what we discussed earlier. These are the underlying moral principles that guide us to making choices, why we do X, Y, or Z. Um, so within that, there are three models of normative ethics. So I'm just going to really quickly just run through these. Um, the first is what's called deontological or duty ethics. This is to do with the rule or the law. So this model says that there are a set of rules or a code of conduct by which all humans must um, obey. We have something like the Ten Commandments as an um, analogy. Um, pretty much whatever the Ten Commandments says, that's it. Um, that's what a, deontologic, a, a deontologist would say. They would say, look, this is what we have to stick to. These are the rules, um, regardless of the consequence, regardless of who it happens to or who it affects, regardless of how uncomfortable you might feel about it. These are the rules. Um, and so we have a lot of judges who are like that. So in some places I've heard that um, if you're not a deontologist, you, you cannot be a judge. Um, so that's quite interesting. 
They need people who, who are less emotionally swayed and more strict to the, to the rules. Um, secondly, we have what's called consequentialism. Um, this is basically with the goal or the end in mind. If you're a consequentialist, you're not just somebody who looks at an act and considers whether it's right or wrong, and that's it. You're somebody who looks at an act, but also takes into account the consequence that follows. So, an action in and of itself might be bad, but if it brings about a really good consequence, such as example number two, when you push the person off the bus or whatever, the trolley, to stop seven people dying, that would be a consequentialist act. They would recognize that it is wrong to push somebody off to kill them, but the consequence was greater. And so you've probably heard the statement, the ends justify the means. You've heard that? It's a pretty much a good summary of what a consequentialist is. Someone who says, I take it that there are immoral things and things that are wrong, but you have to take the consequences into consideration. Um, and that is what makes some actions that would not normally be morally permissible to then be morally permissible. Um, of course, a, a deontologist would have a dispute and an argument with that person, right? You know, that's just wrong to push someone off the, the bridge or push someone off. It, it's just murder. You can't do that. Murder's wrong. Um, it's a law. You've killed somebody. Um, it's never okay to kill somebody, you know? So there are some people who just will not see eye to eye on that. And some of us here tonight might be one of those two. Um, Robin Hood was the perfect case of a consequentialist. So he's the guy that, you know, steals from the evil rich and gives to the innocent poor. Uh, although stealing's bad, he saw it as a good thing. He says, you know what? These guys are evil, and they're robbing from poor people who are innocent, and so this is the right thing for me to do, even though it was still stealing. Then third, we have what are called um, virtue ethicists. This is basically built upon identity, somebody who takes their own virtues as the highest value, someone who says that, yes, there's a lot of evil out there, and for example, if I had to press the switch, which would prevent the train from going towards and hitting these five people, but if it killed this other person, that would still entail that I've made a wrong action. It's not so much about what other people are doing, I care about me. The virtuous would say, I care about me. What does this make me look like? Who does this make me become? How does this affect me as a person? Not necessarily in a selfish way, but more in like a, a morally acceptable way. Um, how does this make me look? I'm a virtuous person, you know? They might say things like, I have to stand before God one day and give an account for my actions. Um, I'm not ready to stand before God with murder as one of my, uh, you know, things on my list that I have to give an account for. So, um, there's a lot of dispute there. The consequentialist might respond and say, yes, but you'll be giving an account not just for what you do, but also for what you didn't do. You know, we all know passages in Scripture where Jesus, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, he makes it clear that it's not just about what you did do for the least of these, it's also what you didn't do that you'll have to give an account for. So God's not just primarily concerned with what you do, he's also concerned with what you don't do, when you should do something, right? And we've all heard that saying, that evil prevails when good men do nothing. So sometimes it's not, you're not off the hook, just because you are allowing something. Um, sometimes it's allowing of something that is considered maybe just as bad as causing or doing. That's debatable, though. 
So moving right along, we have not just meta-ethics, not just our normative ethics, but we also have our applied ethics. This is the actual meat of what we're talking about. This is the actions. Are they right? Are they wrong? This is when moral theory meets moral practice. Um, the do I, the don't I. It's taking the big overarching picture of meta-ethics and what is good and saying, what about these specific individual actions and cases? What should we now do? So it is really quite practical where the rubber meets the road. So we've seen um, now three cases or three um, approaches to, in a kind of descending systematic fashion for how we look at ethics. Um, let's see what happens when we apply it to real life here. Just for a quick thought experiment, um, I'm an Australian and I'm not from the United States. Some of us here are from the United States. But I know that if I mention 9-11, it's not just those in America who are affected by that. 9-11 affected the whole world. 9-11 affected me, someone who lives on the other side of the world, um, just from seeing and hearing what took place. Um, because humanity's connected. It's not just they've done something to somebody over there and it doesn't affect me. No, it affects all of us, what we do to one another. And I want to give a thought experiment. Let's say, hypothetically, you knew one of the terrorists who was the lead terrorist involved in planning and preparing for this attack. And let's say you managed to capture him, and let's say you sat him down. Do you think it's morally permissible to torture this person to gain crucial information so as to prevent thousands of people dying? Is it a good thing? Not just can it be done? Is it morally permissible? Is it good to torture this individual to get information if it meant saving thousands of lives? It's not an easy question. Some people think, yes, yeah, straight away, easy. I'd do it. It saves thousands of lives, easy. Um, some people would say, you know what? I couldn't bring myself to torture this man. I would, instead, I would just pray and maybe ask God to, to intervene or something. I would try another route, but I couldn't torture him. It's not a straightforward answer, to, to not everybody at least. And so these are some of the things that you run into when you're talking about ethics. So we've looked at ethics just briefly, but we want to talk about Christian ethics. How do these ethical principles apply to a Christian? How can we navigate the ethical landscape as um, Bible-believing Christians, as people who want to be like Jesus, who take Jesus' teachings seriously? Um, how, how do we go about those things? Do these principles apply to Christians, or are they just secular principles? We're going to talk just real briefly about that. So, does Christianity have room for all three normative approaches? Deontology, virtual, virtue ethics, does it have room for consequentialism? Did Jesus show signs of either of those three, or maybe all three? Well, it's going to have, we'll have to take, take a quick look at this just really briefly. So, Jesus was not necessarily against the deontological approach, um, the rules and the laws. He, he actually kind of was fond of that. He made some statements that were quite clear. Um, one thing he said, which many, many of us here will know, he says, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. That's a kind of classic deont deont 
deontological. For some reason, I tried to say it that time, didn't come out. Um, is anyone curious on that? What would Jesus do if he walked into this room? What would his view on ethics be? Would he, would he be somebody who says, you know what, you have to weigh out the consequences and, and do this? We do have a verse that talks about Jesus saying, if your eye causes you to sin, what do you do? Pluck it out. Or if your hand causes you to sin, what did he say? Cut it off. And he says it's better that you suffer this than to have your whole body thrown into or be destroyed, right? And so, to, to a consequentialist, they're looking at that statement by Jesus and saying, that seems to be pretty, like, much like a consequentialist, Lord. Like, you seem to be down that route. You're saying some suffering is permissible in order to prevent larger suffering or greater suffering. Is that what he's saying? For the record, I think some people think that's hyperbolic. So Jesus is using exaggerative text as a way of saying, you know, um, exaggerative means as a way of making a point. Um, some people take that literally. It's literally better to cut your hand off than for you to, to get thrown into hell. Interesting. That one's debatable. Um, Colossians 3, verses 1 to 6 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you will appear with him in glory. So, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, whether it be sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Because we as Christians are dead to ourselves, and our lives are now alive to God, to Christ, we must put to death certain immoral behaviors. In other words, Christian ethics entails certain ethical rules and laws which exist to benefit us, others, but ultimately to honor and glorify God. Let's consider the book of Luke, chapter 6, verses 32 to 37. If you love those who love you, what credit is that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners. Um, yeah, even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend them, lend to them without expecting anything in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind and ungrateful to the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. I love that. Here Jesus commands us to love not just those who love us, but also our enemies. To lend to our enemies, not just to those who will repay, but lend to those who perhaps cannot. Jesus said all of that. The rules that we are to follow are different to the rules in many situations which the world naturally follows. It's quite normal to hate or despise your enemy and only love those who love you. But Christians should be able to live out the ethics of a non-believer, and even more so, 
We have the Holy Spirit and we have God's revelation in Scripture. We're going to talk about that in just the next few minutes. But we still need to learn how to apply that, don't we? I think Jesus represented all three normative ethical approaches. And I don't think it's either that that the three is, is a hard, one of the three is a hard and fast rule that always applies to every situation. Um, I think it's the context that will determine whether one approach would be morally um, more correct than the other. It would be the context of the situation. And I think Jesus showed that as well. So what do we do then when Jesus is not explicit on certain things? For example, did Jesus say anything about taking drugs? Did he say anything about piracy? Or how about euthanasia? Did Jesus mention any of those things explicitly? No, he didn't mention any of those explicitly. If Jesus didn't give us explicit answers to all of these, then how does a Christian navigate through the many ethical quandaries that confront us today when we face things like euthanasia, um, when we face things like... um, well, there's a, there's a very big list there, but we'll just leave it at that. On what do we base our Christian ethics? What is it that Christians base their ethics on? Number one, first and foremost, Christians base their ethics on Scripture, on God's revelation through His Word, directly and indirectly, through private reading, but also through interpretation of Scripture. And this can be seen in commentaries or through teachers, people who open the scripture to give us more context, help us to understand what the Bible's actually saying. So we use both direct and indirect. It is our first and and final um, authority when it comes to Christian ethics. Secondly, we have the Holy Spirit. You know, it's not just this dry reading of the Bible. The Holy Spirit's, one of his roles is to enlighten and to illuminate certain things in Scripture towards us so that we can know deeper spiritual truths. He leads us into all truth. He guides us. And so a Christian doesn't just have a, a Bible to refer to, or especially Jesus' teachings, but they also have an inner witness, and they also have the leading of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Number three, Christian historical statements. These are not primary, but these are some of the things that Christians go to for Um, some ethical guidance. We can think of creeds. Um, You know, we can think of things like apostles' creeds. Um, Some people have catechisms, early church fathers, things of that sort. Um, Another one is apostles. We look to the direct descendants or the direct, um, not descendants, the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, who firsthand walked and talked with Jesus. So when they share on things, um, you know, your conclusion is that they're giving the very words of Jesus through them. So we look to some of the examples in Scripture through the apostles and prophets. And then lastly is Christian theology. Something like the Reformation is one thing that has taken place in church history that I believe um, gave us better guidance in terms of ethical um, scenarios and what to do. Um, so God has used His Word, He's used His Spirit, He's also used other Christians throughout history to help Christians navigate through ethical um, dilemmas. This gets to the last and final point, and this is perhaps the most important point. This is the law of love. 
Romans 13, verses 8 to 10 says that, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Matthew 22 verse 37 says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the greatest commandment, to love God and to love others. All other commandments hinge upon these. If our applied ethics as believers conflicts with loving God and loving others, then we've gone off track somewhere. We've missed it. We need to go back to the drawing board. Because there is a law which all Christians must operate under, and that is the law of love. Love is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. If one claims to know God or to walk closely with Christ, but does not love, then that person cannot consider themselves to be a Christian. Because to be like Christ is to love. I want to read a few passages of Scripture just to establish this. 1 John 4, verse 7 to 21. I'm just going to read a few verses in this. I hope that's okay. Beloved, let us love one another, for, God is, for love is from God. And whoever loves has not has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His perfect love in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He is, the, give, is given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is so, also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, because, he is, because as perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, then he is a liar. For he does not, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. 
Whoever loves God must also love his brother. You see, the Christian ethic of love for one another is grounded in God's very own nature. God is love. There's our meta-ethics right there. And so we, who are made in his likeness and in his image, therefore too must love. What we do reflects who we are. But what we do is also meant to reflect what God is like. As we bear his image, we are in fact God's representation here, are we not? So the Christian ethic is primarily founded on love and centered around Christ. Now does this remove every question? Does it make everything simple and easy? Not necessarily. However, this does give us a foundation. This gives us a foundation for how to build our lives. It gives us a filter for how we ought to treat one another. It gives us a bedrock. So if we as Christians start with love for God and for others, then that's a great place to approach ethics from. If two or more Christians agree to walk in love but come to different conclusions on an ethical dilemma, how then do we treat one another who we differ with? Do we disrespect them? Do we treat them in terrible ways? Do we, how do we treat them? Do we disregard the law of love if we come to different conclusions? Um, or do we uphold our calling? Do we uphold what it's like to be a Christian, to love God, to love others, and not let our ethical difference violate something even deeper and more central to our faith, which is to love. As long as we keep love as the bedrock for all ethical inquiry, there is room for discussion and differences. Because of love, we can live out our Christian ethics. We can do unto others, and we would have others do unto us. We would go the extra mile We would forgive one another. We would not repay evil with evil. To love our enemies. To live peaceably with as many as possible. To be quick to forgive and slow to anger. And many other biblical truths like these. I hope tonight we can see that talking about ethics, it's not always as easy as we might have anticipated We don't always agree on certain things, and there are, as we talked about, moral underlying principles. But it's good to have our views challenged. It's good to be open. That helps us know what truth is. That helps us be more like God, more like Christ, to be somebody who holds truth as the highest value. As Christians, it's so important that we recognize that above all, we have the responsibility and the privilege to represent Jesus in this world. And we do this by how we think, by how we talk to one another, and by what we do, what our actions are. Ethics is central to the Christian message. God's sanctifying purposes in us is not just to save us from the penalties of sin, but to restore us to holiness. For us to be the perfect sons and daughters of God that perfectly reflect his good and holy character and nature. 
Jesus said that they will know you by the love that you have for one another. That's pretty clear. That's how they will know you, by the love you have for one another. Christian ethics hinges on love, and so too does our representation of Jesus. So on that, I think we should close in a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we just thank you, Lord, for your word, your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we can know what to do, Lord, that you have not left us to just worry about these sorts of things, to figure this out on our own, Lord, but you have given us your word, your spirit, Lord. And Lord, Father, I ask that as we go about our daily decisions, Father, that um, you would just guide us into all truth, Lord, that we would start all of our discussions and we would start all of our meetings with people with love, Lord, we would treat them as, as you would treat them, Jesus, that you would show us what it is that we should do as Christians, as good people, Lord. Help us to know the right choices when we face easy or difficult decisions, God. And um, Lord, we just give you all the glory for all of this. We, we just entrust the remainder of this week into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That, that summarizes, that's it. That's a wrap. If you would like more information or resources on this or other topics, or if you would like to sow into this ministry financially to help us share messages just like this one each week, please visit our website at brainer.org.au.